Have you been outbirding? Outbirding with Field Guides is the new birding video series you've been hearing about. The latest episodes from Lima, Peru, Arizona, Brazil, Cape May, and the Prairie Potholes include adventure, conversations with fascinating bird people, and field pointers. Remember, even when you're at home, you can always go outbirding with Field Guides. Join the fun at outbirding.com ABA. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. We have a slightly different sort of show for you today. It is the week after Thanksgiving here in the U.S. And I am, while you are listening to this episode, I am removed to the beach, to the Outer Banks, with my immediate family. But do not worry, we are taking appropriate pandemic precautions, keeping within my household, bringing everything with us. We are essentially moving our collective workspaces away from where we have been for months uh, to a place with a view of the water and hopefully some birds. There's some stuff out there that is persisting that I would like to pick up for my state list. There's a rough-legged hawk at Alligator National Wildlife Refuge right now that will probably hang through the winter. I have not seen that in the state. And late November is a Really fantastic time to be hanging out on the North Carolina coast. The potential for really good rarities is quite high, and I hope some focused searching might turn up something really, really exciting. So that's what it means for me. What, faithful listener, does it mean for you? Well, it means that I am recording all the relevant parts for this podcast ahead of time, but we still have new content for you. I have some stories, some stuff I've been sitting on for a bit, just for an occasion like this, uh, from some friends and colleagues at the ABA, and I'm going to share them with you. First up, Greg Neese tells the story of an epic, record-breaking Illinois big day. Spills, thrills, will they catch the record? I guess I already said it when I said record-breaking. Anyway, listen and find out. Act surprised, please. Then... High schooler Hannah Floyd makes her podcast debut with a story about winter birding during a pandemic in downtown Denver. Yes, you too can bird this winter wherever you are. I hope you find it inspiring. Also, no rare birds this week. We'll catch up with two weeks worth, just like the old days, when I return. Hey, maybe I can even talk about a bird that I found. Now nah, that'll jinx it. I just jinxed it, didn't I? Dang it. On with the show. p.m. Tuesday, May 14th. The team assembled at my house in Berwyn. We load up, grab a cup of coffee at the Duncan, and head east on the Eisenhower Expressway to Lincoln Park. We arrived at the promenade at South Pond at 11.54 p.m., and in minutes we're watching a cooper's hawk sitting tight on a nest, as well as several black-crowned night herons by the light of sodium vapor street lamps. Two seconds after midnight, Wednesday, May 15th. We have our first two species of the day and head west. As was the case on Sunday, these would be the only night herons and cooper's hawks we would see during the day. 2.35 a.m. We arrive at the marshes near Lock and Dam 13 on the Mississippi River. I broadcast a Sora call and nothing answers. Nothing would continue to answer while we were there. I tried Virginia Rail, but they were with the Soras. I tried Common Gallinule, and a coot responded. 
But then the Gallinules, as they are wont to do, couldn't restrain themselves any longer and started calling back. A fly over Dick Sissel was our first dirty bird of the day. Two of our team didn't hear it, but time to go. Our screech owl was on station, and 4 a.m. found us trolling the back roads north of Mississippi Palisades, listening for a barred owl. We soon found an obliging pair caterwauling from a steep hillside and were off for Lost Mound. The Lost Mound unit of the Upper Mississippi National Wildlife Refuge is an eerie place in the dark. It's an abandoned army depot with crazy-shaped buildings lurking in the overgrown landscape. It's also an amazing place to find birds. We arrived at 4.30 a.m. and trolled the area listening for a great horned owl. Silence. The wind was near calm, and the temperature was hovering just below 7 degrees. As the eastern sky began to color up, the first whippoorwills began calling, and that set off the morning chorus. Our list grew rapidly with goodies like clay-colored sparrow, lark sparrow, northern mockingbird, blue grosbeak, henslow sparrow, grasshopper sparrow, summer tanager, western meadowlark, yellow-bellied sapsucker, alder, willow, and yellow-bellied flycatchers. By 6.30 a.m., we had ticked over 100 species. An hour later, we began working the ravines at Mississippi Palisades Park, where we found our barred owl earlier in the dark. Birds were singing everywhere, and our total continued to climb. Kentucky warblers and oven birds rang out every few hundred yards. The place was full of warblers and thrushes, cerulean, yellow-throated, hooded, prothonotary, pine, northern perula, and Louisiana water thrush were all on territory and singing loudly. I spotted a small bird in a brush pile by a stream that I expected to be a water thrush, but score! It was a morning warbler that teed up beautifully for us. By the time we left the park, we had 131 species, including 28 warblers, and it wasn't even 9 a.m. A few quick stops on the big river, where Adam plucked a couple canvas back out of thin air, we headed south. A quick stop in Henry County netted a few species, and lunchtime found us at Hennepin Hopper Lakes in Putnam County. The mid-afternoon doldrums had begun, and the temps were rising into the 80s, and the birds were quiet. But the specialty species we came for, namely yellow-headed blackbird and prairie warbler, were there to meet us. Time to fly. 2 p.m. We stopped quickly at Banner Marsh to scope the osprey nest there, tick, and headed south to Clark Road and Emaquan National Wildlife Refuge. On the way, Adam yells, hang on, hang on, hold it. We were on Route 24 going safely over the speed limit when he saw white things by the side of the marsh. They were either cattle egrets or washed up trash, he said. We turned around. They were cattle egrets. Birding with this team was humbling and exhilarating. Adam can pick out a blue-winged warbler song from the woods while bombing down a gravel back road at 30 miles an hour. Bob's eyes never seem to leave the skies, and no soaring raptor can evade him. Redder is a professional birding guide, and it showed. Nothing could escape us. If it was there, we'd see it or hear it. Emaquan was hot and slow. We picked up a breeding plumage horn grebe, Bell's Vireo, 
yellow-billed cuckoo, snow goose, marsh wren, and some Eurasian tree sparrows that Larry was able to coax out of the scrub near the observation deck. 4 p.m. Now we faced another long haul, but this was into unknown territory for us. Our original plan was to finish the daylight hours basically where we were now, but the shorebird habitat from Sunday had evaporated, and I called an audible. The drive to Meridosia was quiet. We were in the mid-170s. The day was running out, and we couldn't see a clear path to 188 species, which would give us the prize. Jeff was becoming irritated. It's the unspoken part of doing a big day. We hear all about the awesome sightings, the strategy, and so on, but it's the grunt work, the driving, especially the driving, and Jeff is an especially gifted driver, and staying on your game when you've been up and going at it for 18 hours with another day's worth of work ahead of you begins to take a toll. Spirits crash. Jokes aren't funny. And you have no idea how important having good jokes is when you're trapped in a van with five people for 27 hours. As we arrived at Meridosia, we were an hour behind schedule, tired and losing power. We came over a rise on Towhead Road, and there spread out before us was hundreds of acres of flooded ag field. We immediately picked out a pair of white-faced ibis, then a willet, and a northern bobwhite called, and a dick sissel was singing nearby, cleaning up that dirty bird. But it was obvious that the hordes of shorebirds reported here Monday had left. We had one more stop for possible shorebirds a mile to the east, but that was it, and then it was back into the woods. We drove down Route 100, looking for a spot described to me by a couple of birders the day before. We came to what I thought was the right place, but it was empty. The tension radiating from Jeff was palpable. He was hot, tired, and we weren't going to make it. The back seats were quiet. We started south to cross the river again and head to where we would finish our daylight hours, Siloam Springs State Park. Again, we came over a rise and saw another flooded ag field, and Bob, sitting behind me, calls out, Avocets! The birding gods appreciate grit, turmoil, and angst. They threw us a bone. That stop netted us not just American Avocet, but also Wilson's Fallerope, White Rum Sandpiper, and Greater Yellowlegs. We were back in the game. 6 p.m. We were at 184 species and hauling across Pike County. We had three target species, Warm-Eating Warbler, Buick's Wren, and Chuckwill's Widow. But even if we scored all three, that only left us tied, which was not an option. We arrived at Siloam Springs at 6.40 and went straight to the old picnic area where the worm-eating warblers live. It's great habitat for migrants with a little happy bouncing stream running down the middle. We cruised through the park to the spot and found the road closed, a mile away from the warblers. Jeff's frustration was now at a rapid simmer. The birding gods chuckled from their perches. Can't make it too easy on them, can we? Respect is everything, they mused. Well, we turned around and went back to the headquarters buildings where a pair of Buick's Wren lives. We stood. We waited. We listened. We waited. We paced. We waited. We searched. Jeff was about to snap. The team was losing juice. We were hot, sticky, sweaty, very, very tired, and losing focus. 
Failure was staring us in the face. A small bird flew past, and a second later, the ringing song of a Buick's wren erased the heaviness. The birding gods were back on our side, the fickle bastards. Then a black-billed cuckoo flew past. We had to find some more migrants. We had to find them fast. We were still missing Blackburnian Wilsons and Canada warblers, as well as belted kingfisher sedren, Virginia rail, blue-headed, and Philadelphia vireos. There was still hope, but we had to find a pocket of migrants, and we had to find them quickly. The clock was ticking. It was 7.15 p.m., and we had to be at our Chuck Wills widow location by 8.10. We pished until we nearly passed out. We screeched. We found birds, but nothing new. Time was up. We have to go. Assuming the Chuck Wills widow came out to play, that would put us at a tie, and then maybe a Virginia rail in the dark would put us over the top. Maybe. We cruised down County Road 950 North, headed towards the Chuck Wills widow through a gallery of planted pines on one side and rich oak forest on the other. A large brown bird launched out of the trees ahead of us and swooped low to a landing across the road. As it did, the pale crescents on the wingtips flashed out. Red-shouldered hawk! We glassed it briefly before it took off down the road again and then flew up out of sight to the right. We tied the record. And while we were high-fiving, high-piercing whistle of a broad-winged hawk came from overhead. And then it did it again just to make sure we heard it. 188 species. We did it. We laughed and cheered like the inmates at Wrigley Field when the Cubs make a base hit. We got to Buckhorn County and settled in to wait for Chuck. We were happy to the point of giddiness. Adam started a pool. What time would Chuck start singing? We put in our bets, and while mindlessly rubbing the bag of lucky charms my wife gave me carry on my big days, I blurted out, 827. We stood around swatting at midges, talking about how tired we were, our allergies, and wiping our noses, and we took a selfie. It was the only picture that exists of this motley crew. Soon the sky was deep blue-violet. The woods were dark and ringing, and from the green depths... <laughs> hey, Adam, what time is it? 27, he replied. Sweet! There was a lot of snuffly snoozing in the back of the van as we made the two-and-a-half-hour trip back up to Hennepin Hopper Lakes. 11.25 p.m., we arrived at the Ernicus Road access, opened the doors of the Chrysler Town and Country van, and were flabbergasted. All you could hear was gray tree frogs. They overpowered everything in the marsh. What a change from Sunday night's 39 degrees, where all we could hear were bitterns and rails. But speaking of bitterns, he would have none of that, and subwoofering up from the marsh came... Tick 190. And then a great horned owl hooted off in the distance, giving us 191 species for the day. The 1997 record mentioned at the beginning was the effort of a team that included Bob Hughes. It was especially good to have him on this team that recaptured the title. I have to admit, I'm something of a warm weather person. Don't get me wrong, I love snow and cold, and even the occasional blizzard and avalanche, as much as any other high school student born and raised in Boulder County, Colorado. 
But when it comes to nature study, I have a fondness for warm places in the warmer months. My idea of a perfect day of natural history is going to the hot lowlands of southern Colorado in July or August to look for race runner lizards, tiger beetles, tarantulas, and more. That said, I had an experience just a few days ago that reminded me that there are always amazing things to see, no matter where you are and no matter how cold it is. The venue was City Park, right smack dab in the middle of downtown Denver. When we arrived at this heavily developed square-shaped parcel, it was clear and cold. The park gates were locked shut. No biggie. We drove around downtown Denver, found an apparently legal parking spot, and legally, well, I think, entered the park. The park's tall cottonwoods were gray and seemingly lifeless, and one of the little ponds was frozen, but we soon became aware of a great clamor of birds, cackling geese, hundreds of them flying into the park. We went over to the pond, this one had open water on it, where the geese landed, and we were delighted to see hundreds of northern shovelers spinning around in great swirling scrums. There were other beautiful ducks, hooded mergansers, common golden eyes, and more. In clearings, we saw pink-sided juncos, blue jays, red-shafted flickers, and many other land birds. At one point, we heard a sad, steady tooting sound that I associate more with the mountains. Sure enough, a lovely Townsend solitaire. The bird was drinking water from another pond with open water. I love how this species of the remote mountains had found its way to downtown Denver. I must confess, I was especially interested in the park's small population of domestic gray lag goose swan goose hybrids. There was something so perfect about them, adaptable, resilient, and inarguably beautiful. This population has been in the park longer than I've been alive, and I think they're the perfect emblem of the proliferation of wild things everywhere you look. I'm already thinking about long road trips next summer, but for now, I'm taking in the quiet drama and grandeur of winter wildlife. The Christmas bird count season will soon be upon us, and after that, the energy and excitement of finding new birds in the new year. It looks like we'll all be staying close to home this winter, and please do take seriously restrictions on travel and gatherings. But maybe that's a blessing in disguise for wildlife watchers. Open your eyes. There's so much to see everywhere right now. Thanks to Chris Parrish, Richard E. Webster, Sue Riffey, Lance A.M. Benner, and Ted Floyd for the bird recordings used in this episode. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Hey, it's the end of the year fundraising drive. If the ABA has made this weird, frustrating, isolating, distant year even a little bit more bearable for you, please consider making a donation to the ABA. More than ever, we depend on your donations and memberships to keep the lights on. You can head over to aba.org slash gift to do so. You can also help us by joining the ABA if you're already a member. Even purchasing a gift membership for a friend or family member who you think might enjoy it is very helpful. That stuff is still at aba.org slash join. I don't have any special shout outs this time. Again, recording it early. I will catch up with all that in the next episode. But if you like, you can head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or a review. It gives us great feedback. It helps people find us when they're looking for birding podcasts. Thank you so much for that. Executive producer of the American Birding Podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey A. Gordon, who is celebrating the day after Thanksgiving, searching for unusual vultures. An annual practice he calls... Black Friday. Technical production is from John Lowry, who on the first weekday after the long Thanksgiving holiday, he will head to the lake 
and look for shorebirds, a little something he likes to call Piper Monday. Additional help comes from Greg Meese and David Hartley, who pack up and head to the marsh five days after Thanksgiving to celebrate Red Wing Tuesday. You can find us online at ABA.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, on Instagram at American Birding Association, and on Twitter at ABA. There's no dumb commercial slogan for Wednesday, which is something I probably should have looked into before I started down this path. So please make your Wednesday a birding Wednesday. I am... Come on, rough-legged hawk. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, everybody. See you next week.